Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6, 6th chapter of John. As you turn there, I will comment on the fact that this is a long chapter. It is 71 verses. Um, if, we, if we average 10 verses a week, seven weeks to get through here, my guess is more likely eight. And because of that, this, this morning, I want to do sort of an introduction to the whole chapter. Not only is it a long chapter, but it's a unified chapter. Some chapters, say in Luke, will have multiple parables, multiple events. John 6 follows a, a pattern set up in John 5 where you have a miracle, an event, a sign. And then that sets up a large discourse. And that happens here. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then there's a transition as he walks over the Sea of Galilee, as the people come around and find him. And then he teaches them. And then we find out sort of a conclusion and outcome. So my plan this morning is to read chapter 6, take about five or six minutes, walk through a condensed outline and overview. And then there are a couple themes and features that are easier to see if you look at the whole chapter than if you're going through five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten verses at a time and cover some sort of overarching themes. What are we supposed to see here? What is John doing here? What is the significance of this chapter? Um, So that's hopefully what we'll cover this morning. So let's begin by reading John chapter 6. You can follow along with me in your own Bibles. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, 
but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you perform that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate men in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and, as, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This 
is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What then, if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the fullness of its testimony. And Lord, as we look at this chapter, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see that we might not be like those Jews who saw a miracle but did not see the sign behind it. That we might understand that we would not turn away from Christ even if his sayings are hard and difficult that we, you might give us the faith that we might believe and know and trust that this indeed is the Holy One of God. This indeed is the one who has the words of life. We might cling to him by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a long chapter, but manageable. We can read it in five or six minutes. What I'd like to do briefly first is just give you sort of an overview as we work through this. And we'll be in here for May, June, part of July, most likely. Um, just sort of... Some sort of a framework of the chapter Where I put the divisions You could do differently These aren't inspired divisions But this is helpful for me So if you want to think about it The first 14 verses Some people make it the first 15 verses Give the account of the miracle The setup of the miracle um, Where this takes place This is one of the miracles That occurs in all four gospels um, And so there's, there's great significance to it Um, I put 15 on the other side because 15 is the basis of Jesus' departure. So so after the event itself where Jesus feeds them miraculously, what's interesting is the text doesn't even tell us where the miracle takes place. It doesn't tell us he multiplied. All we know is somehow between the boy with his fish and his loaves and Jesus lifting up his eyes and giving thanks, somewhere in there, there's multiplication of food. We, We don't even see it happening. We just see the result, which is there's plenty of food for everyone. In some senses, John's telling of it understates the miracle, because we don't actually see it. But there's no words to describe the miracle, just the result of the miracle. And so you were left wondering, how did this happen? What did this look like? I don't know. Um, Then we get a transition from 15 to 21. Jesus, detecting that they want to come and make him king by force, surprisingly, retreats, leaves, departs. And he crosses the sea, walking on the water, Another miracle. John even implies that the crowds 
have some insight into this because they know there was only one boat and they know he wasn't in the boat. And so they may not know how he crossed, but something unusual has happened. Then they get in boats and they follow over. Um, and then we get the discourse, which is the meat of the chapter from 22 to 59. Um, the discourse. So the event, point B, the transition, Jesus' moving locations. And you could put the crowd's movement in transition as well. I and mean, that's why, in some sense, these lines are arbitrary. But, but just to get the movement, 14 verses on the sign and the miracle, culminating in the people's confession. This is indeed the prophet like Moses. All right, good as far as it goes. Then Jesus moves, he retreats, he backs away, he crosses the sea. They cross the sea. They meet Jesus. Hey, funny meeting you here, Jesus. And then there's dialogue, which becomes monologue. And then at the end of the discourse, we get the outcome. So event, transition, discourse, outcome. And the discourse, you could break down into four parts. The narration of the people crossing over to see Jesus, which you could put in the transition, but because they start asking questions and Jesus starts responding, I, I put it where I did. Then Jesus' exhortation to them that they would seek food that endures and work and the work that God requires, which then leads to Jesus insisting he is the living bread come down from heaven. And then even more explicitly, eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. And then we get the result. Many, many of these people depart. They grumble, they complain, and they leave. And Jesus even challenges the 12. I mean, it is a striking chapter. It is a striking chapter of what is taking place here. So it is overarching narrative that that's the thing. Jesus does the sign. He, he, he moves location. The people move location. There's, there's question and answer. There's explicit teaching about Jesus as the bread come down from heaven. You need to eat his flesh, drink his blood, and then we get the result, the, the conclusion, which is G Jesus doesn't have big crowds now. Jesus doesn't have lots of disciples. That's kind of the arc of the, of the narrative. So what I'd like to spend our time for the rest of this morning is to look at some significant features and some central themes. Significant features and central themes. The first is, and I mentioned it already, that this miracle is in all four Gospels. There are not many things in all four Gospels. Only three things I'm aware of are in all three Gospels. This miracle, the triumphal entry, and the crucifixion and resurrection. Which means this is the only work of Jesus in his ministry that is in all four Gospels. This is the only miracle that isn't the miracle of the resurrection that's in all four Gospels, which gives it some priority. It gives it some significance. And so even though you probably, in, in Sunday school or in Awana, you've seen the flannel graph and the, the, the bread and the fishes, prepare to look at it again. Uh, the fact that it's in all four Gospels suggests there's more going on here. There's greater importance than we might otherwise think. And so as we work through this in the coming weeks, uh, I, would, I would encourage you to consider that maybe you, we aren't seeing what we should see. Maybe we should see more. We're even warned in, in Mark's account that the disciples, well, I'll read to you, Mark 66, um, 51 and 52, the end of this event, Jesus got in the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So even Jesus' own disciples didn't get what he was saying. They didn't understand that Mark gives us that. So we don't want to be doing that. We, we want to see. We want to understand. So that, that's the first sort of big theme. This miracle sets up the entire teaching. So rightly understanding the miracle is going to tie in with rightly understanding the discourse and what Jesus is saying. Okay? Second point. The prophet like Moses, the Exodus, and Israel in the wilderness are all in view in the entirety of this chapter. 
This is another thing hard to do when you're going verse by verse. But looking at it from a big picture, let me, let me suggest this to you why this is the case. First, in verse um, 4, we're told the Jewish Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we got Passover, which is, of course, the final miracle provision protection that, that gets the Israelites out of Egypt. This is the event and the meal that signifies the event, which ushered in the Exodus and Israel entering into the wilderness and going to Sinai and making a covenant with God. And then, of course, we get the mention of the manna from heaven, which is, of course, took place only during the wilderness wanderings. But most importantly, if you look at verse 14, what conclusion do the people come to? What title do they give to Jesus? When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So, Turn to Deuteronomy 18. You may want to put a piece of paper or a thing. We'll be turning back here a couple of times. Um, This is, I think, one of the big conclusions we're to draw. Deuteronomy 18. We've already seen the question from the the Pharisees who sent the uh, Jews down to question John the Baptist. Are you the prophets? We've already looked at this, but... One of the figures Israel's looking for, one of the, the messianic figures that the Lord would send, is the prophet. And we get the description of him here. Deuteronomy 18, 15, we'll read through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, so a prophet like Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So before we go any further, the Lord's going to raise up sometime in the future a prophet like Moses from their countrymen, from their brothers. And what duty do you have to this prophet? You need to listen to him. And listen means more than simply like hear, but to to take in. It's sort of like the Proverbs, the writer in Proverbs. "Hear, Hear my counsel, O my son. It's more than just, well, I listened. No, no, take it in, receive it. Um, accept it, incorporate it. You, you need to listen to God's prophet. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. So they came to Sinai. They said, we need a mediator. We cannot face the living God, without mediation. We will die. We need a go-between. We need someone who goes up and talks to God and comes back. We need a prophet. And the Lord said, fair enough. And Moses served that way. Well, God would raise up another prophet who would mediate and speak for God with his words. And this then characterizes that prophet. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, repeated again, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So, God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. He's going to raise the prophet like Moses up from among their countrymen, from their brothers, from the nation of Israel. The obligation of all faithful Israel is to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, God's going to judge you. That's the basic gist of it. He will mediate between God and man, speaking God's own words on God's behalf. So now go back to John 6. Keep your finger here. We'll turn back. Go back to John 6. The people, in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they identify him. And we saw the woman at the well as well. She understood there was a coming, a teaching Messiah. 
but the very text of Deuteronomy 18 that tells them that he'll be raised up from among your brothers is what they end up tripping over. As Jesus begins to teach, do they respond to him like he's the prophet from God? Do they listen to him? Do they take his words in or do they trip up over it? They trip up over it intently. Um, and they start to dispute among themselves. L- look at, where is it? Look at uh, ooh, verse, hold on a second. I got underlined over here. This is the problem with having like multiple texts out over here. Um, yeah, verse 41. Here we go. What, 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 before we get to verse 41, what typified Israel in the wilderness? We had to think of one word to describe Israel in the wilderness. I, I think grumbling would be pretty good, right? And so we're out in the wilderness, we're out, we're out in a rocky place, mountain might be a bit of a stretch, a hilly area more likely is the better translation. They're out somewhere away from people, they're out in the wilderness, there's no nearby cities or towns, and Jesus does this miracle, he feeds them like Moses gave them manna from heaven, there's another link, and the people say, this is the prophet, ooh, but then the people grumble, verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Which is to say, is this not the prophet from among our brothers? That's what you're supposed to expect. But the very fact that he's from among their brothers, that they can point out his mother, that they can point out his adoptive father, they can point out his brothers, their very familiarity with him causes them to have contempt. So even though Deuteronomy tells you, the the, the prophet's going to be raised up from your brothers, He's not going to come down from heaven full grown. He will be raised up from among your brothers. They trip over exactly that, and they grumble. They grumble. And the counterpoint to that is, of course, Peter's confession at the end, which is why I said it's a unified text. Is this the prophet like Moses? Taking place near the Feast of Passover with the constant repetition of pointing to the manna in the wilderness, with the people identifying as the prophet of Moses, the people grumbling. What does Peter say in verse 67 when Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. A plus, Peter. That's, that's what Deuteronomy 18 said. If this is the prophet, then God has put his words into his mouth and you and I and Peter and everyone else must listen to him. And even as Mark tells us, the disciples don't understand. I, I don't think Peter understood everything Jesus is saying. When the people say, this is a hard saying, I, I think Peter and the disciples agree. That was, that was a tough one. That was, that was, I don't know what to make of that. He just flesh. whoa. But I do know you have the words of eternal life and I'm not going anywhere. That is a faithful response to the prophet God raises up. That's why I think the chapter is unified. Um, from the very beginning of the miracle, with this echoing of Israel in the wilderness. I mean, and you can even add on top of that, Moses, what's Moses' great giant miracle that he's known for, but, but the miraculous sea crossing. And, and Jesus, in his own right, we're told, has his own miraculous sea crossing as well. I wouldn't start there, but adding up everything else, is this a prophet like Moses? Well, here's another comparison to Moses. Just as Moses had a dramatic and miraculous crossing of a sea, so, so does Jesus. Okay, so that's going on in the background, and you kind of got to stand back and look at the whole chapter to see all the pieces of it, the people grumbling, manna, Passover, the prophet like Moses, you have the words of eternal life, that's, that's all going on in this chapter. Um, point C, 
Jesus' discourse is not primarily about communion, or the Lord's Supper, or from some faith traditions, the Eucharist, if you like. Those faith traditions that have the highest, most sacramental view of the Eucharist, Catholic Church, some Lutheran churches, they build their their doctrine of the Lord's Supper, their, their strongest arguments from John 6. Luther himself couldn't, couldn't agree to disagree with Zwingli over this. Jesus said, my flesh is true flesh and true food, and you don't agree, and we got to fight about it. And so the, Luther and Zwingli, the, uh, the, the Swiss reformers and the German reformers, never really united because of their view of the Lord's table. And the strongest arguments made for, for the real presence of Christ and communion are, are from John 6. And I want to say that that's not in view here, at least not directly. Um, that's not in view directly. You have to import that to, to get that out of here. I think you can make some connections to communion, but let me, let me give you three reasons why I don't think Jesus' discourse is first and foremost about the Lord's Supper and communion. Number one, he hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. Nobody, nobody, absolutely nobody, would make the connection in the first instance. This is a year or more before the Lord's Supper, the night he was betrayed. So nobody he's talking to could possibly make these connections. So so if you're going to insist Jesus is first and foremost talking about the Lord's Supper, then you also have to conclude he's teaching something that would be impossible for any of the 5,000 or any of the 12 to understand. It's possible that that's the case, but that seems a bit of a stretch to me. Nobody would make, no one could make this connection at this time. The second reason, John doesn't. We've seen John, the narrator, make connections, give us points. We, we saw that in chapter 2 when he said, destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. His disciples did not understand, but after he was raised up, then they understood. There's none of that here. Suggesting hidden meaning, confusion. John, I don't see anything in chapter 6. We just read it. Do you see anything in chapter 6 where John, the narrator, John, the author, is pointing us to communion, the Lord's table? I don't. I don't. In fact, the institution of communion in the Lord's Supper doesn't occur in John's gospel. So it's really hard to argue that John wants us to get this point when he doesn't even have that in his gospel. The only way you could argue it that I can see is the argument that this is so well known, the connection is so obvious that John doesn't have to connect the dots. That's so obvious. You could try to do that, which brings my final point for why I don't think this is about communion, is we'll see a little bit later. Jesus gives them an interpretive key. When you, when you have a metaphor, when you say, this is like this, when you say, um, you know, a, a man's household is like, is like a castle or something, you've got to explain, well, in what way? It's made of stones? No. And you've got to find a way that the metaphor works. So Jesus gives the parable of the sower, right? He, he needs to give the interpretive key to the disciples. A sower went out to sow, and he scattered seed on hard earth, and he scattered, scattered seed on rocky soil and thorny soil, and he scattered seed on good soil, and then Jesus has to say, what is, how does this compare to something else? Well, it's the sower, the seed is the word of God. And then the, the different soils are hearts of men. And oh, okay, that's the comparison. You need an interpretive key. Jesus gives an interpretive key. So if I take this discourse on its own merits, without importing understandings from the other gospels in, Jesus tells his hearers what to make of this. In what sense is he talking about eating and drinking? In what sense is he talking about his flesh and his blood? I think he gives an answer. We'll see that shortly. So I, I don't think, first and foremost, I think you can eventually get around to some implications for the Lord's Supper and communion. 
but I do not believe at all that is the primary or first referent. And so that's important to get out of the way. Point D. Jesus in this chapter intentionally winnows, winnow to, to, to boil down, to, to get the chaff off, to, to, to purify, to narrow, to shrink his flock with hard truths. And again, again, in John's gospel, Jesus does the surprising. In John's gospel, Jesus doesn't do what you'd expect. So in chapter 3, the teacher of Israel, a, a great rabbi comes to him, a Pharisee. He addresses Jesus with an honorable title. It's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough, fair enough. But Jesus doesn't treat him like he treats someone at the well. Well, Nicodemus, that's good of you to know. He, he takes him head on. You won't be born again unless you... You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. I challenge your ability to size me up, Nicodemus. Then he goes to a Canaanite village, and there's a woman who's been married five times, living with her boyfriend. And how might you expect a fastidious Jewish rabbi to respond? Not the way Jesus does. Pursuing her, even as she tries to dodge him and change the topic, and he just faithfully pursues her. And then we saw in five, Jesus instigates conflict. He picks a fight. He sets up the events so that he can have conflict with religious leaders. I didn't expect that. Well, here, Jesus is is at the the peak of his popularity in John's gospel. He's he's got 5,000 men, possibly many more, if that's not naming the women and the children, and they want to make him king. That is a lot of energy and a lot of goodwill to work with. And they're making some connections legitimately. This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. They're quite right. Now, it's clear they don't understand that rightly. They think the prophet, like Moses, is going to deliver them militarily, like Moses set up the the conquest of Canaan. They're waiting for this prophet, like Moses, to cast off Rome. But they got the identity right. Surely, Jesus has plenty to work with here. He leaves them. He takes off. (laughs) Verse 15, perceiving that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. There wouldn't even be any hard teaching if they didn't follow him. He'd just leave. That's surprising. That surprised me. He could have started a megachurch, right? We know at times the numbers of people hanging on his every word were so great that they couldn't arrest him. We know the same thing happened in Acts. There's a protection from a crowd. And Jesus, this is fulfilling what was written in chapter 2. You remember chapter 2? He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. Jesus doesn't need a crowd. Doesn't need a crowd. So he leaves. (laughs) Surprising. And, And then when they follow him and they catch up with him on the other side of the sea, he intentionally winnows his flock. He intentionally drives people away. And that may seem hard and unloving and unkind, but... Because he knows what's in every man's heart, what is, more, what is kinder when you've got a false convert, when you've got a false disciple? What's kinder, leading them on in that delusion or exposing their unbelief? You've called me. I think something like this is going, you've called me the prophet like Moses. Let's see if you hear my word. And, and don't miss it. Don't miss what they say in verse, where is it? In verse, there it is, 60. I'll raise up a prophet for me like Moses. It's to him you shall. Say it, come on, easy one. Listen, there you go. To him you shall listen. 
Get verse 60. When the people, when then many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In case you missed the connection, John makes it explicit. These people aren't listening to him. They can't listen to him. Jesus is, is helping them see. I think it's a kindness on his part to help them understand. You may think I'm the prophet like Moses, but you're not listening to me. And so it is an act of love. It is an act of love to drive them away. So that people who thought they were pro-Jesus, King Jesus, make him king. Make Israel great again. Understand, no, actually, I don't receive his teaching. It's too hard to hear. I can't listen to it. That is kind of him. So point one here. The crowd that sought to make him king turns back. Turns back. That's another function this chapter serves. How, how does Jesus get crucified? How does a man so popular with crowds that follow him and want to make him king, how, how do they turn on him? Well, we see it starting even here in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So chapter 6 gives us an explanation for how that can be. Chapter 5 gave us the explanation for why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. And chapter 6 gives us an explanation for why the crowds might turn on him. And this further point two shows what was lacking in the faith of those spoken of in John 2, 23 to 25. Remember, one of the things I've insisted is that John is the gospel of believe, 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 salvation by faith, but also the gospel of making it clear what that means and putting up something he can call faith that doesn't save. And the first time we saw that was in 2, 23 to 25. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. And we're left going, well, well, what? Well, here, how does he introduce this crowd? Why is this crowd following Jesus? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. John hasn't even told us about Jesus doing signs, plural. He, he healed the man by the pool, but apparently he was doing other healings. You know, the, the Gospels fill that in. John's only picking specific episodes. So here's a crowd, this believing, following, confessing something about Jesus because they saw some signs. And that is the very nature and point by which Jesus rebukes them. Don't, don't miss this. In 35, look at 35. Um, no, sorry, in, in 26, sorry, 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. But compare that with 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. So how can Jesus say they didn't see the sign when John said they saw the sign? And the answer is Jesus means something a little different. Oh yes, their eyes saw a miracle. They saw the sign. And we know what conclusions they drew. Make this man king. Give us this food always. Free meals every day. Yes. Thank you. Sign me up. That's the conclusions they drew. And we know when Jesus says, no, 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 this is actually meant to point you towards that I'm the food come down from heaven. They said, who can listen to it? This is too hard. I'm going home. So they're seeing the sign and they're seeing the sign. Which helps explain how then, and there's a tension in John's gospel that you need to see. Why did John write his gospel? John chapter um, 20, verse 30 and 31. Now many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. 
John said, I wrote a book of signs. The signs are miracles. I wrote a book of signs that you would believe. And then people see signs and they believe something John can call believe. And Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. Jesus rebukes the people in chapter 4. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So if you read John's gospel, it's clear. There's a seeing of signs and an enthusiasm from seeing of signs that does not please Jesus, that doesn't profit. And yet John's gospel is written as a book of signs that we might believe. Well, I think 26 makes it clear what the problem is. A miracle of Jesus, a sign of Jesus will profit and benefit if you rightly understand it. What is it pointing to? What is its meaning? What is it meant to show? And if you see the miracle and all you conclude is, well, this guy's got powers from God, like Nicodemus. I'd like some more bread, please. It's not profiting you. And and Jesus actually has a rebuke, like he does in chapter 4. Chapter 6 is going to show us that. How, how can seeing a sign or a miracle benefit you, and how can seeing a sign or a miracle not benefit you? Chapter 6, I think, explains that, gives us clarity. There is a faith that comes from seeing a miracle. It doesn't help. Jesus exposes its insufficiency. These people don't listen to him. They don't receive him. They grumble and they go home. And yet, at the same time, we we're told in chapter 2, this was the first of Jesus' signs, his disciples beheld his glory and they believed. Well, I think that phrase, beheld his glory, is key. At the wedding at Cana, they understood the significance, pardon the pun, of the sign. And it profited them and increased their faith. And so when we see this miracle, we want to see its significance. We want to rightly understand it so that we will profit by it and not simply be like these Jews. Wow, that was really cool. Wish I could have been there. It would have been amazing. Which is all true. But it's also what this crowd could have said. It's not enough. Not by a long shot. So those are significant features. Finally, three central themes. Three central themes. I got to move quickly. Okay, um, and, and that's fine because these are these are exhortations or encouragements for you in the next coming weeks as we go through this. What, what should you be looking to do? What's some application? One, um, picking up on what I just said, you need to rightly see Jesus' signs. You need to rightly see Jesus' signs. You don't want Jesus' rebuke in twenty six to fall on you. I don't think. And so precisely because this is such a familiar sign, it's in all four Gospels. And you've seen that it's, it's great for kids to color, right? I mean, and that's not, I'm, not, I'm not in any way demeaning it. My point is there's all the basis for which we can become overly familiar, just like they did because they knew Jesus' parents and his brothers. You, you don't want that to happen. And so you, you need to see it rightly. Part of what you need to be doing as you read through this, as you work through this, I, I need to see what they didn't see. What Mark says the disciples didn't see at the time, that John wants us to see. John wrote this sign that we don't believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing have life in his name. So there's something important and valuable here, but we also have an example of a whole group of 5,000 people who don't get it, who don't see it, who don't profit by it, and who go home grumbling. We don't, we don't want to be them. So pray, seek to see and understand the sign rightly. Point two, B, actually, B. You must come to and believe in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 35. When I said earlier that Jesus gives us an interpretive key to the whole flesh and blood and eating and drinking language, it's it's in 35. So my final argument for why I don't think this is first and foremost about communion, even if someone were to say, well, it's for anyone reading it now, it's so obvious— Except Jesus tells them what he means. He gives them the analogy. And it's right here in 35. I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. I'm bread, and whoever comes to me shall never hunger. So coming to Jesus has the result of not being hungry. What then is coming to Jesus likened to if he's bread? Eating, right? What is it that you and I do that satiates hunger? We eat. And Jesus says, I'm bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. I think he's just made it clear in the metaphor, in what way is Jesus bread? Well, it's in the metaphor that by coming to him, you partake, you eat, you come to him and you don't get hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So believing is equated to some activity, I wonder what it could be, that satiates thirst. I think in verse 35, Jesus makes it clear that when he says eat and drink, he means come to him and believe in him. Plug it in. I think there's your key. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So for the attentive person here listening in the first instance, one of the 5,000, one of the disciples, Jesus has just told them all of this bread and blood and eat and drink really is about coming to Jesus by faith and believing in him, which explains the emphasis on belief in the entire narrative as well. Even as it's dominated by the eat and drink and bread and blood language, we get in verse 36, I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 40, this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And also the emphasis on coming. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him. Verse 65, he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus is through the entire chapter, just as the eating and drinking is through the entire chapter. And in verse 35, Jesus explains, coming to me has the result of not hungering. And believing in me has the result of not drinking. I think it's pretty clear. He's giving the metaphors key. Eating and drinking refer to coming and believing in him. So if communion pictures believing in Jesus, and if communion pictures coming to Jesus, then we can take information here and imply it and import it into our our memorial meal. But not primarily, secondarily. That's what I mean. I'm not saying there isn't some implications. I do think that our meal of remembrance that we have once a month pictures in part, among other things, that we are those who have come to Christ. We are those who continually find sustenance from him. We are those who continually look to him for our food. Sure. And from that, we can import information from this chapter. Secondarily, in the first instance, he's talking to 5,000 people who need to come to him and believe in him, and instead they turn away and grumble and go away. That, that's, that's what I mean. And so we... What's the big point of this chapter? Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Point C. You need the Father's gracious enabling in order to come to Jesus Christ. We've seen this already insinuated in John 3. The wind blows where it wishes. You need to be born of God. Here, and for those of you getting caught up in the Calvinist, Arminianist, sovereignty of God, free will disputes, some of the strongest Calvinist verses, there's Christian verses, are found in John chapter 6. 
As Jesus explains, Jesus' answer for why so many turn away and grumble is not, well, I guess I biffed it. I guess I should have been nicer. No, you're not one of my flock. You're not one of those God gave to me. That's what he says. We'll get to it, but let's just look at a couple of these. Um, John six thirty-seven through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you think Jesus came ultimately to save everyone, he failed. If you think Jesus came to save everyone, he failed. Jesus says, I came to do the will of my father, the will of my father. I lose nothing of what he gave me. He succeeded in that perfectly. He'll say that in John 17. Father, I have kept them. They do know your name. So these are some of the strongest verses. And Jesus brings them up to explain why vast crowds of people choke on what he says and turn away. We're going to see that. That this emphasis that those who come to Christ by faith do so for the Father's enablement. If you've come to believe in Jesus, thank the Father that he enabled you, he drew you, he called you, he gave you to his son. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Massive verse in these debates. If you ever watch any of these debates online, you watch people like James White and other people debating. Man, John six forty-four gets brought up a lot. And, and Jesus is saying this to people as they're falling away and apostatizing as disciples of Jesus. He's crediting their unbelief, their lack of clinging to him as, as due to these, these foundational issues. That's in this chapter. Jesus has brought this up starting in chapter 3 where he tells Nicodemus, you're not going to understand and size up anything unless you're born by the Spirit and you, you can't make the Spirit birth you. Here, he's, he's taking along further. That's in here. And so one of the things we need to see from this chapter is that if, if we've come to faith in Jesus, it's because God has enabled, God has drawn, God has done a work. Verse 65, this is why I told you, after all the people fall away, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted or given to him by my Father. That's why I put grace in the title. Gifts are grace. They're not debt. You can't obligate the Father to gift this to you. You can ask that's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. You can ask, if you knew the gift of God, you'd, you'd ask for the waters of life. You can ask God for this gift. And it's my belief that he delights in giving it, but he doesn't owe it to you. It's grace. It's grace. It brings us finally to the last point, And I think we will have time for our closing song, which I'm glad for. Um, ultimately, the test here in this chapter of what you make of Jesus, they want to make him king. That looks good, doesn't it? Jesus has no interest in disciples who don't keep his word. The test for Jesus and what you make of him, get this, is not that you believe in Jesus, but that you believe Jesus. Let me say it again. Here, at least in this chapter, the test of a disciple is not that you believe in Jesus, but that you believe Jesus. Does he have the words of God? And don't tell me, yes, he has the words of God if you don't obey them. Your actions betray. No, you don't. You don't think that. Elsewhere, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Jesus has some hard teachings here. The other gospels make it clear. Even the disciples don't get it. it and, and let me pause. It's okay to say, I don't understand. I'm not sure what you mean by eat your flesh and drink your blood. 
I'm sure Peter and the apostles were, were stumbling too. The, the, John's report is not the disciples got it, yay, and the rest of the crowds didn't. Mark makes it clear they didn't understand. But they did understand, this is the prophet, this is the Holy One from God. I need to receive what he's saying. If there's a, if there's a failure, it's a failure on my part, and so I'm not going anywhere. That's faith, that's discipleship, that's what a Christian looks like. And so we need to come receive, and we need to cleave to Jesus as the one sent from the Father who speaks the words of life. And I'll, if you've got your thumb in Deuteronomy 18, I'll read it one more time. Plug in Jesus now. We know the answer to this prophecy. It's Jesus. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It's Jesus. As to him, you shall listen. Listen to Jesus. Verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And John makes it explicit when the people say in verse 60, this this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Unless they repent, the Lord will require that of them. And Peter, not of a mark of his brilliance in understanding the metaphor, but a mark of his faith, this is the prophet, a mark of his submission and humility. Jesus says to him in 67, "Do do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It is, I've been talking about doubts. I've been talking about struggles in the last week or so with various people. It is okay. Christians struggle with these things. It's okay if there are parts of the Bible you don't understand, you don't know how to reconcile. You meet somebody and they're like, yeah, well, what about? And they throw out their objection. Like, it is completely okay to say, I don't know. Give me some time. I do know this is truth. I do know Jesus is the Holy One of God. I I do know that. And so give me some time. I'll get back to you. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a fine place to be. Be with Peter. But also, be convinced there's nowhere else to go. Our closing song puts the words of Peter's mouth in our mouth. And I hope you would sing it sincerely. That even when God says things that are hard and challenging and difficult, we don't grumble and turn away. But even as we don't understand, we are convinced we will stay here. Lord, show us. Show us Christ. Where else can we go? We'll call the worship team up. We'll have a word of prayer. And we'll sing our closing song. Lord God, give us eyes of faith and ears to hear. Give us the confidence that this is indeed your Holy One who has your word. Give us the conviction, the commitment that even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we don't understand, that we would stay put that we would go nowhere else, that we would be convinced that Christ indeed has the very words of life and that by clinging to him and to his words, we might have life as John um, said he wanted, that his prayer and desire, that the Lord Jesus' prayer and desire would be granted in our faith and in our faithfulness here today. In Jesus' name, amen.